0: You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for August 14th, 2022, the 10th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 56. I want you to think for a moment about your spouse, or perhaps if you're not married, you can think about your best friend, whoever it is with whom you are most comfortable in the world. Or want you to ask yourself, when was the first time that you stopped being on your best behavior around this person? When was the first time that you wore your actual favorite t-shirt, the one with holes all over it because it's so old? Or when was the first time that you showed up without having uh, done your hair? Or perhaps um, uh, you haven't taken a shower after you worked out and you were just no longer worried about body odor around this person? Now, some of you are gonna to get to the back and you're gonna say, I've never not been worried about body odor, I'm from New England. Where do you think yeah, we're, we're, anyway, I, 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 I respect that, but body odor or no body odor, when was the first time that you were on, you weren't, you weren't on your best behavior with this person? See, I think that when we we're on our best behavior and all of that, uh, everything that that signifies, because we're not certain that person really loves us. When we're certain that somebody loves us, really as we are, we can be fully ourselves with them. We don't need to put on any airs. It doesn't matter what we smell like. They're just going to love us. And believe it or not, the crazy passage which I just read from the Gospel of Luke is trying to say that God doesn't need you to be on your best behavior around him. It's okay if you wear your ratty t-shirt or if you come into his house a little smelly. Now it's hard to see how in the world that message could be contained in what I just read. The passage that I just read is one of the most difficult sayings of Jesus in any of the four gospels. Father Peter has a great book. He brought it to the podcast, which we recorded in the balcony earlier this week. It's called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And this one is definitely in there. The second half of this lesson, the one about family systems theory, I'm, I'm just going to say just a brief word about it, and then I'm going to put it to the side. This is the bit about Jesus having come to bring divisions rather than peace. I interpret this, and Father Peter and I discuss it at length on the podcast if you're more curious. Uh, I interpret this not as Jesus saying I'm coming to bring division as he literally says, but rather I have come to reveal the divisions which are already there. And this is because I read it side by side with with a prophecy given by an old man named Simeon in the temple to Jesus' mother, Mary, whenever Jesus is a baby and they brought, Mary and Joseph have brought Jesus to the temple for what's known as his presentation. Uh, and at the presentation, Simeon, who has been waiting for the Messiah, who's been told by God that he would not die before the Messiah has come. He says famous words, famous because they become a canticle or a song sung in worship. When he sees Jesus, Lord, thou let us now thy servant depart in peace. He's saying, actually, now I'm at peace. I've seen the Messiah. I can go to my death in peace. Following that, he tells Mary some things. It's as though Simeon pulls Mary aside whenever they've come to the temple. And he says that this child is destined for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And then he says that the secret thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And I think that's what's being fulfilled in this passage this is what's being fulfilled in Jesus's life and Jesus is recognizing it Jesus is the Prince of Peace but his presence reveals the secret thoughts of hearts it's as though people get close to Jesus and who they really are comes out and who we really are is not always pretty we are a people who are divided right families are divided our nation is divided the world is divided it was divided then divided now and Jesus is saying this is the way it is folks and it is very clear in my presence And eventually, when Jesus died, he got churned up by all of those divisions. That's what I think he's after in that part of the passage. The first bit, though, those first two sentences about fire and baptism, that's what I'm particularly interested in this morning, though. To interpret them fully, I think that we have to look also at the beginning of Luke, this time to chapter 3. So here Jesus isn't a baby. Jesus is all grown up. Uh, And his cousin, John the Baptist, has been out in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John is picking up on traditions of water baptism, baptizing people in water in order to call them to repent and call them to turn their lives around and to leave their life of sin. And he's been doing so, saying that the Messiah is gonna come and so you better be ready. So here's your baptism, repent, the Messiah is coming, etc. And something that John the Baptist says in each of the four gospels in different ways is, I'm not the Messiah. He's very clear about that. Ostensibly because he was being confused for being the Messiah. He's an incredibly uh, incredibly popular guy, as it were. Um, He says, I'm not the Messiah. There's someone coming after me. And here's the way that he says it in Luke chapter three, verse 16. John answered the people, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." It's another hard word. So. John is saying, I baptize you with water, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This fire imagery that he's picking up is one of the three chief metaphors in the New Testament for God's judgment. The first of which is the famous sheep and goats. I always feel badly for the goats. My sister's a a large animal vet, and she specialized at the University of Tennessee in ruminants of which Goats are one, sheep are great, they're kind of stupid, they're actually stupid, my sister says. Uh, but goats, goats are fine, but the goats are always the bad guys in scripture, so you got sheep on one side, you got goats on the other. That's one image. The second image is people who are on God's right hand as opposed to God's left hand. For the lefties out there, I'm sorry. That includes my father, who's streaming right now. Sorry to the lefties, the left hand is always the side of evil, the right hand is always the side of good, that's the second image. The third is fire. Okay, it's separating wheat from chaff and then you burn the chaff because the chaff is useless. There's no nutritional value, you just burn it away. So you separate wheat from chaff, you throw it in a fire, poof, all gone. Three biblical images for judgment. John is choosing the third of those and he's saying that's the baptism that the Messiah is going to baptize you all with. The Holy Spirit and fire. Ostensibly because some of you are going to be alright and some of you are going to get burnt to smithereens like the chaff. That was John the Baptist. Jesus, I think, is referring to this passage from Luke three to this prophecy about him, but in a way (laughs) with a twist that is just marvelous. Notice with John the Baptist, who's the baptizer and who's being baptized. So the Messiah is the baptizer, the one who's gonna baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire, and we are the ones who are being baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. But in our gospel lesson this morning, Jesus is the one who's being baptized, not us. Jesus is the one who's gonna get burned up, not us. So he starts with the fire line, right? I've come to bring fire to the world and how I wish it were already kindled. Then he says the baptism line. I have a baptism with which to be baptized and I'm under stress until it is completed. He's referring to his death. So this passage in the Gospel of Luke is taking place on the long journey to Jerusalem. Jesus at a certain point sets his face to Jerusalem towards the place where he knows he's going to die and he heads towards it. And on the way he's performing miracles, he's teaching and so on. This is one of those uh, exchanges that happens while he's on the road to Jerusalem. So he's forecasting his death. Of course he's under stress. I would be too, wouldn't you, if you were going to die like that? If you were going to die, period, of course he's under stress. But he's the one being baptized, not us. It's a reversal of John the Baptist's prophecy. Jesus is, as it were, both the baptizer and the baptized. His is the baptism with which to be baptized. And I think also he's the one who's going to get thrown into the fire. In the words of the the great Protestant theologian Karl Barth, Jesus on the cross, in his death, is electing God and elected man. He is God the judge, and he is man the judged. And Jesus takes all of the heat, as it were. Takes it all, suffers the penalty, pays the price, receives the sentence, And cancels it out that's what happens on the cross he just cancels it out it is as though we can imagine we're in a courtroom and Jesus is the judge the Greeks say he's gonna come again to judge the living and the dead right Jesus is the judge it's our turn to go up to the witness stand and Jesus says well I know I'm the judge I'm also probably the prosecutor, but let's not get lost there. I'm the judge. I'll go to the witness stand instead. I'm just going to take care of it. You just sit right there. I got this. There's a baptism with which the world needs to be baptized. Guess what? My baptism. And I'm under stress until it's completed. That's what he's saying this morning. The only thing left for us to do is to enjoy our forgiveness. So that's a phrase which is associated um, with the spiritual writer, Luke Rowland. He writes for Mockingbird magazine, to which I was introduced by Jan Maines, our director of children's ministry. Uh, It's also been picked up by Calvary St. George's Parish in Manhattan. They've started to put it on signs and they put the signs outside of their church. So you're like walking on the way to the cereal bar and uh, you pass by the sign that says, enjoy your forgiveness. It's just fabulous. Because that's all there is. He got baptized with this stuff so that we didn't have to. He got burned up so that we didn't have to. The only thing left is just to enjoy our forgiveness. That's it. There's a brilliant uh, piece by an Episcopal priest, the late Robert Ferrer Capon. Uh, Capon was a parish priest for 30 years in Port Jeff on Long Island and um, a brilliant spiritual writer. If you're a cook, I recommend his, um, his book, The Supper of the Lamb, which is a collection of recipes, and he gives you the recipe and then he explains the theology afterward. He's just, he's just totally brilliant, a delightful writer. Uh, but Luke Rowland, in an article that he wrote for Mockingbird, where he's explaining the genesis of this phrase, uh, enjoy your forgiveness, um, refers to this particular passage from another of Capon's books about the parables, the parables of grace and judgment and Capon here invites us to imagine judgment. To imagine we're in heaven before the pearly gates, etc., and we meet Jesus. And, well, you'll see. It's a whole lot better than my courtroom metaphor. But here goes. This from Capon. So, what happens to the unjust? What happens to wrongdoers, the bad? Well, The unjust are all the forgiven sinners of the world who stupidly live by unfaith. They're the ones who are going to insist on showing up at the resurrection with all their record books, as if they were undergoing an IRS audit. The unjust are those who are going to try to talk Jesus into checking his bookkeeping against theirs. And do you know what Jesus is going to say to them? What, for example, he'll say to his heavenly host if he if someone comes to the resurrection with such a request, I think you will just say, just forget it, Arthur. I suppose we have those books around here somewhere if you really want to take a look at them. And if you're really determined to stand in front of my great white throne and make a fool of yourself, I guess we can open them. Frankly, though, nobody up here pays much attention to them. What will happen will be that while you're busy reading and weeping over everything that's written in those books, I will go and open my other book, which I mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, the book of life. The book that has in it the names of everybody I ever drew to myself by dying and rising. And when I open that book, I'm going to read out to the whole universe every last word that's written there. And you know what that's going to be? It's just going to be Arthur. Nothing else, just Arthur. None of your bad deeds because I erased them all. And none of your good deeds because I didn't count them. I just enjoyed them. So what I'll read out, Arthur, will just be Arthur, real loud, and my father will smile and say, hey, Arthur, you're just the way I pictured you. And the universe will giggle and say, that's some Arthur you've got there. But me, I'll just wink at you and say, Arthur, come on up here and plunk yourself down by my great white throne and let you and me have a good long practice lap before this party gets so loud we can't even hear how much fun we're having. Friends, that sounds a whole lot better than being on your best behavior. Amen.